leading us in worship and uh, preparing us. Uh, thank you for being here. Palm Sunday, whether you're here in person, uh, watching online, we're so glad that you are here, that you will participate. Uh, hopefully you will participate in the week's uh, activities, that this might be for you a time of renewal and focus as we uh, prepare to go into Good Friday and uh, the observance of the Lord's Supper, communion together, and uh, always such a meaningful time. And so I hope that you'll get word out, invite people. You know, sometimes during these, uh, I understand that as believers and followers of Christ, every Sunday when we gather, we are in fact uh, celebrating uh, the resurrected Christ. And so for us, Easter Sunday is really no different, but for a great many, uh, you have the opportunity to invite them. They may come on what they perceive as being a holiday Sunday. They may perceive this as an opportunity to come and be a part when they otherwise would not. So I hope that you will invite them to be a part of uh, your friends, your coworkers, uh, neighbors, to be a part of our Good Friday service and our Sunday service as well. Uh, so in keeping with Palm Sunday, I want us to open our Bibles this morning to uh, Matthew chapter 21, uh, Jesus is making his triumphal entry in fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And, but where I want to pick up the story is about halfway into this, after he has made his triumphal entry and what then takes place. It reminds me as I read this of an account I heard of a young girl, a little girl that went to the circus for the very first time. So very excited, and after the circus was over and all that she saw, all that she experienced, you can imagine, and through the eyes of a young child, just the enthusiasm and the zeal that she had, and she comes back home and she's telling her grandmother about her experience, and with every detail that she shares, there's a growing enthusiasm, growing excitement, and finally, when she reaches the crescendo of her enthusiasm, she said, Grandma, if you could just go to the circus one time you would never be satisfied with church again. Well, I find it interesting that in the last week of his life, the last thing Jesus wants to do before he's crucified is go to church, go to the temple and address what has become a circus. Jesus has made his triumphal entry here in keeping with, with prophecy. He's entered into the holy city uh, with all the pilgrims that uh, are making their way. The city is swelling in population. Jerusalem, normally a town, a city, an urban area of about some 200,000. But during the Passover, as pilgrims come from far and wide, uh, the numbers will swell to about 2 to 2.5 million. And as Jesus makes his way, as he, after he enters into Jerusalem, as he makes his way to the temple, Jesus is deeply troubled. He's agitated by, by what he sees. Well, you know what he's done. It's described here in verse 12, notable event that he arriving upon at the temple and the outer temple area, seeing that, that it's being set up as a place of business and merchandise. Jesus then turns over all the tables of, of the money changers. Now, now Jesus values human life. He never lays his hand. We aren't given the depiction that, that he lays his hand, that he strikes anyone. He just, we can't say he rearranges the furniture a little bit. Theologian E.P. Sanders 
New Testament scholar whose work is primarily known in his, in his writings dealing with Paul and, and the law. He sees this as, as a seminal event. He believes that, that it is this event, the turning over the tables of the money changers, that would immediately cause his death. His argument is, is that if you want to find one catalyst event that would bring about the crucifixion of Jesus, this is it. Now, what I see in this, and as I read this passage, and as always the curiosity of Jesus going to church, to the temple, right before he's crucified. And as I see the activity of Jesus and I see the action of Jesus based upon what he saw, what it was that agitated him, that disturbed him, that would bring him to a point of knocking over tables in frustration and anger. It has raised in my mind the question of what does Jesus see when he goes to church? What does Jesus want to see in us when we go to church? Well, the first thing, if you read verse 12 already, the first thing that I think Jesus is looking for, for those who, in, in the life of those who go to church, he's looking for pure, pure motives. It says in verse 12, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all those who were selling and buying on the temple grounds. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, these... These words sound very much like the instructions that Hezekiah, the king, gave to the priest and the Levite in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 5, where Hezekiah said to him as they were preparing the temple to reopen it and uh, to make it a place of worship. Uh, it's interesting. He said, carry out the filth from this holy place. Get rid of that which corrupts this holy place. Now, out of all the things that were frustrating to Jesus, that he was seeing this being made into a place of merchandise, I would think that one of the most compelling things that, that really disturbed Jesus is that when he entered into that temple area, that what he saw in that outer court, which was known as the court of the Gentiles, this was, this was to be a place where the non-Jew, where Gentiles could themselves gather for worship. And his frustration has to be that, that you as the people of God, as a Jewish leadership, as a people who are called to lead out the people of God, that the Jewish leadership has now allowed the court of the Gentiles, a place for others to worship, to become a place of commerce and trade. Jesus, understanding the, mis the mission and the purpose of the Jewish people, that is to be a light unto the world. You are to provide a platform, an opportunity for Gentiles to join in worship and hopefully become a part of the people of God. And you've removed that. Along with that, we would have to say that what was also troubling to Jesus is the exploitation that was taking place. It was necessary for these pilgrims as they made their way into Jerusalem, the holy city, as they made their way to the holy place, the temple, to the temple, to conduct their holy activities, what was required of them is that they had to exchange their, their Roman currency for, for temple currency. And what had happened is that they were now, these vendors were now charging exorbitant fees for doing an exchange that was, that was required. 
And not only that, there was the price gouging of the doves, the the lamps, other elements, other things that they might need to make the appropriate sacrifices to God. The pilgrims wouldn't travel with those things. They knew they could be purchased upon arrival to Jerusalem and, and the temple. But now there were price gouging that was taking place. And doves that would any other time just cost a matter of a cent were now being gouged with huge profit margins. And what disturbed Jesus and the observance of this taking place was this, was that, is that this temple area, this temple at large, a building such as this, an edifice such as this, that was created for a sacred, established for a sacred purpose, has now been corrupted by secular intentions. That which was established for sacred purpose, sacred expectations, has now become a place of secular enterprise. What's in it for me to make a profit? I think it begs the question for all of us, why do you go to church? What is your motivation and going to church? Is it to be seen? Is it because we are part of a, of a community that is conservative by nature? That, is it a business decision that if you want to do business in a, in a community like ours, well, the public better know that, you know that, that you're willing to put a fish on your building, that you have a, that you have a, a church membership, you see, that, and that's the problem of Constantinian Christianity. When I'm, I'm sure the early church thought it was a, a great coup whenever Constantine, the Roman em- emperor, established Christianity as the official state religion of the Roman Empire. That sounds great, doesn't it? Man, we're in power. We're now part of the accepted culture. Constantine establishing Christianity as the official state religion of the Roman Empire. But the church became corrupted. All of a sudden now, you've made your bed with the government. People began to recognize, if I'm going to get a job, if I'm going to have the stability of government employment, you know what? I've got to profess my faith in Christ. I've got to join the church. So when Jesus goes to church, he examines the human heart. He's looking for motives that are pure. Second thing that he looks for is prayerful anticipation. That you and I, as the people of God, when we come to this place, when we come together as a gathering kind of people, which we are called to be, is there a prayerful anticipation to our, to our worship? Notice, he says in verse 13, Jesus finally speaks. He hadn't spoken in 10 verses. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, if you have a reference Bible, you probably notice here that that as Jesus is justifying his action, what he has just done in turning over the tables of the money changers, he's justified that by by citing a text from from both the prophet Isaiah and, and the prophet and a text by the prophet Jeremiah, the two great prophets of Israel. 
the two great voices of Israel, Jeremiah and Isaiah. And notice that, that in each of those texts, if you were to look at them individually, in each of those texts, much, much emphasis, much is made of the house of God. Much emphasis, much weight, much gravitas is given to what happens in the house of God. And so it has, it has to raise the question in, my, in our mind, is the place of worship that important? Now, Jesus himself would say that, that one greater than the temple is here, and, and indeed it's true. But what about those designated places where there, where there, where there is the expectation of, of the sacred being given emphasis? And the temptation to say is to say, Bobby, what happens in these, inside these walls, does it really matter what, what happens inside this room, in this, in this building, in this sanctuary? Is it really that important? I mean, there, there's far more pressing issues, far more pressing issues that need to be addressed out there in the world. The circumstances that are far more important that are worthy of discussion than some kind of ancient practices that that take place in, in this room? Well, to see, to see the action of, of Jesus, I think Jesus believes that, that what we allow to happen in here, what we emphasize in here, it profoundly impacts actions and attitudes that are appropriate for us as the people of God out there in the midst of those issues. The world doesn't inform us what our attitudes and what our beliefs should be. As we come here as a people of God to elevate the name of our Father, to bring honor and glory exclusively to Him, it's as we worship him, as we praise him, as we study him, that our minds are fashioned and transformed to our attitudes and actions to all issues out there, not vice versa. Do you know the word prayer that, that Jesus uses here when he talks about this being a house of, of prayer? The word stands for the whole worship of God. See, when Jesus is using this particular word and talking about prayer, too often we have this limited scope of prayer and our understanding of it to think that we're only praying when our hands are, are folded or we're on our knees or our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed. That, that, that's, a very, that's a very limiting scope in our understanding of prayer. But the word that Jesus uses here, and that, that this is to be a house of prayer, it's a very holistic, W-H-O-L-I-S-D-I-C. It's a very holistic form of worship of prayer. It means holistically, exclusively about him. Now understand that. Again, church, we need to understand because it's in the context that what happens in here and what we emphasize in here, it matters. That we are to be a house of prayer, 
means our emphasis is on the whole of worshiping God. That is, that everything we do in here, and I'm telling you, that's the emphasis of our staff and our planning and our coordinating of what we're going to be about and what we're going to carry out. Everything is exclusively about God. Out there doesn't dictate what we do in here. The Word of God dictates what we do in here. That this, what we do, the reason we gather is exclusively about him. Because as the prophets acknowledged and as Jesus has quoted here, his angst, his anger, his frustration is that they have allowed a den of robbers to come into the temple and to steal away what exclusively belongs to God. Worship. Nothing else. But you know, especially in the American church, and this church isn't excluded, there are always those that want other things to be emphasized besides the worship of God. Wish you'd talk about this. Wish you'd talk about this. No, that, that's the world or the community trying to dictate what you're supposed to do. It's like dens of robbers coming in and trying to steal away that which exclusively belongs to God. Bobby, have you ever thought about having so-and-so come in and speak? No, we don't do celebrity Christianity. It's part of our problem. We're drawn to the most popular personality. We don't, we don't, do, we don't do celebrity Christianity here. That may build a crowd. It won't build a church. We're interested in trying to build disciples, make disciples here. We don't do celebrity Christianity. Well, Bobby, I wish you'd talk about some political issues. We don't do that here. The prophetic voice of a pastor, the prophetic voice, someone who is, or someone who is committed to their biblical, biblically defined role. They understand that theirs is a prophetic voice to say to the people in front of them, do not put your hopes in the kingdoms of men. That the kingdoms of men will fail you at every turn. If we've learned nothing else in the past two years, my soul, we ought to have learned that the kingdoms of men and the systems of man will fail you. And someone who has a truly prophetic voice, they understand that. And they will hold before you exclusively that which belongs to God. And listen, you get criticized for that. And I'm... And, and, you know, and that's fine. That goes with the territory. When you stand where I stand, that, that's just part of it. Oh, I can't believe you're not going to have this celebrity come in and speak, and he's willing to. Then when we say, no, that's, we don't do celebrity Christianity, well, you're just not very spiritual. Yeah, okay. Or we don't want to talk politics. I say, no, we don't talk politics. I'm not going to talk about that. Well, you're not very patriotic. Yeah, okay. I'm far more concerned about the judgment of God than I am the opinions of men. And I understand my role as it's defined by Scripture. And it will be defined by nothing else. And when we come here as the people of God, what Jesus is looking for, is there an anticipatory 
kind of anticipate, is there, a, is there a prayerful anticipation that you have that as you come to this place and we exclusively exalt God the Father and we lift ourselves up to him in word and praise and adoration, do you anticipate that somehow God is going to speak to your heart, that he's going to grab your heart and transform you and stretch you all the more. That's what he's looking for. Another thing he's looking for is redeeming power. When he goes to church, it says in verse 14, and those who were blind and those who limped came to him in the temple area and he healed them. You, know, you can almost say that, that, now that now that he's healed the temple, <laughs> now some real healing can take place. Now that he's gotten rid of the riffraff, now that he's gotten rid of those that had their own secular agendas, now that all that has been set aside, now then some real work of God can begin. Now some real healing can be done. Now then some real redemption can take place. Inevitably, whenever we have verses like this that talk about healing. Someone will ask me, Pastor, do you, do you believe that, that God is still doing miraculous healings today? And I say, absolutely. But you understand that my understanding of miraculous he, healing is far, far greater than, than the blind seeing and the lame walking. Though, those were miracles of the moment that Jesus performed in those three years. And the reason that Jesus did these spectacular manifestations, the lame walking, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the dead even raised, it was to reveal to the world and those would-be disciples that, that there is this great inbreaking, like never before, that there is this great inbreaking of the kingdom of God among humanity. But you know what happened to every one of those individuals that he healed? You know what happened to them? They died. They eventually died and they entered into their reward. It was just, it was, a, it was a miracle of the moment to say to the world, especially those disciples, then there's this great inbreaking, something unique is happening before you. Something that you're going to perpetuate, but you know what? You're going to do, do, you're going to do far greater miracles than I've done here. Because the greatest miracle is the redemption of a human heart, and you're going to be a part of that. You're going to do far greater works than I've ever did. And that has happened. As the body of Christ, the church has been a witness of Christ, the gospel has been proclaimed, and the miracle of conversion has taken place. We're all blind, aren't we? In one way or another, we're all blind, we're all limping. And so how would it benefit you if I withheld the gospel from you? We are all blind and limping. We, we need a healing word from God. We need a redeeming word that gives me hope that lifts me up out of the quagmire of the human dilemma. And in my brokenness and my blindness, it pushes me on to new possibilities, this redeeming gospel. Oh, 
What's low-hanging fruit, church? Listen, I could, get up, I could get up here every Sunday and it'd be so easy to get applause from you. I could get up here every Sunday and I could do a reprise of all that you've listened to all week on your favorite Fox News shows. I could stand up here and do a reprise of all your favorite shows you've listened to on CNN depending upon your political bent. But what would you gain by that? You, you would hoop and holler and say, hey, man. But how, how would that be? Would, would it truly bring about a redemption of, of the inner man? Would it truly bring about a redemption of the human spirit? But it's only the gospel that redeems and makes well. that we make political assertions and get affirmation from amen, it doesn't redeem, it doesn't make well. And so when Jesus comes to church, he wants to know, is, is there redeeming power in this place? Are they speaking of me exclusively? Or are they allowing dens of robbers to have their voices as well? final thing quickly that Jesus looks for when he goes to church is celebratory praise. But when the chief priest and the scribes, notice verse 15, but when the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, They became indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read from the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. Psalm 8 verses 1 and 2. To me, when I read verse, verse 15, it has, it has the beginnings of what I think are perhaps the most beautiful words in Scripture. And listen to them again. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things. When they saw the wonderful things that he had done. And the children who were shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. Isn't it a beautiful portrait? But what is the response of those who saw these, these wonderful things that he had done? Who saw the response of children to Jesus? They became indignant. Jesus showed up at the temple, he was indignant. The religious establishment sees what Jesus did they became indignant. In all the debate about who killed Jesus, who's responsible for the death of Jesus, I put it at the feet of the, of the religious establishment. They saw Jesus as a threat to their way, their position, their standing. They were bedfellows with Caiaphas. They, they were bedfellows with, with Pilate, the, the religious establishment. They were with the government. They, all, they were all sleeping in the same bed. So the religious establishment saw Jesus as a threat. 
usurping our power and our authority, and more especially our control of the people. And despite seeing all the wonderful things that are taking place, seeing the beautiful things that were taking place, and seeing, seeing the responsiveness of Jesus and how children ultimately were the witness, the continuing witness of God in a corrupted culture. Religious people became indignant. And you know, for 2,000 years, in every church, the indignant are still among us. That in every church, despite all the good that is good, that is going on, all the good that is accomplished, lives being transformed, being impacted, children learning the story of, of Jesus. There's still those who are always here and they're indignant. Oh, you can see it in their demeanor and their attitude. They're indignant. Things aren't what they used to be. Things aren't being done to my preference. Things aren't, they're indignant. And it has affected their entire outlook on everything. The praise that is taking place here that he highlights, that is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. It's a it's a spontaneous praise of recognition. We, we gather to praise God on Sunday for no other reason than, than God is God. It's not based upon favorable circumstances. It has nothing to do with circumstances. This kind of praise is spontaneous. It's celebratory because of who God is. Because of what has been recognized and what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. It just evokes a spontaneous celebratory praise. But you know that what we take from here is a praise that we have to take out there to the world. The highest praise, the greater praise that we can offer to God, the proof of, our, of the genuineness of our praise is lives that are lived in obedience, lives that bear the fruit of the Spirit when we're out there, not in here. Going out, it's the feet, the hands, the eyes, the ears, the voice of Jesus. Praising him with our eyes and our ears and our voices and our feet in obedience. That our lives might be that witness of what God has done in Christ. I close with a prayer that someone sent to me. It was a prayer offered by an elderly gentleman who was called upon to close out a service. And the words that he spoke in his prayer captured the, atten captured the attention of all in attendance. And he started his prayer this way. He opened it with these words, O Lord, we will praise thee with an instrument of ten strings. He said, we will praise thee with our two eyes by looking only unto thee. We will exalt thee with our two ears by listening only with the two, year, two ears you have given. 
We will extol thee with our two hands by working in your service. We will honor thee with our two feet by walking in the way of thy statutes. We will magnify thee with our tongue by bearing testimony to thy loving kindness. We will worship thee with our heart by loving thee. We thank you, Lord, with this instrument. Keep it in tune. Play upon it as thou will. And ring out the melodies of your grace. May its harmony always express thy glory. That's what Jesus looks for when he goes to church. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray, Lord, that when we gather in your church, that, Lord, our, our motives would always be pure. That there might be among each and every one of us a prayerful anticipation. A sense of redeeming power that is present among us as we sing songs of praise and adoration exclusively directed to you. As your word alone is, is proclaimed. The Father, when we come together, it might be a time of celebratory praise. And that our lives might truly be an instrument of ten strings. That as we go out from this place, we'll play a melody of graciousness, mercy, hope, encouragement, and redemption. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.